statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to have my guest with me in this studio this afternoon, uh, sitting across the table. And uh, before we get started, just a couple of show notes. I, um, I'd love for you all to tune in, if you can, tomorrow at 12 noon. We're going to be launching my on-the-road segment with Gretchen Carlson talking about her new book, Be Fierce. And we're going to be launching that interview on Facebook Live tomorrow at 12 noon. So if you can tune in, uh, please do at Women to Watch. And uh, visit our website, as always, for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. N-E-T. And uh, also, uh, please follow us on social media. We have some very active, inspirational uh, posts and, of course, our lineup that uh, we have scheduled, I think, right now through December on all of our social media pages on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and Facebook at Women to Watch. So this afternoon, um, my very special guest is going to be Colleen Hanich. Excuse me. Excuse me. And Colleen is the president of LaSalle University uh, here in Philadelphia. And before uh, I welcome Colleen to the show, we do have Kristen Hillsley, our monthly financial contributor with us, who's going to be hopefully um, clearing up a few things around the new tax plan. So I'm very excited to have her today. Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi, Sue. Thank you. Great to have you, and uh, I'm, I am excited to talk a little bit about this new tax plan and um, see if you can clean things up for us a little bit and, and kind of clarify how it's going to affect us. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because I feel like in this part of the area, we've had such warm weather, so it's kind of funny to be thinking about year-end tax planning um, because it's been like summer up until last weekend, I guess. Right. Um, so finally, I guess today we're having a little bit cooler, more normalized temperatures, but believe it or not, we are already going through client accounts and <clears throat> trying to help clients with year-end tax planning, which is something that's so important to do um, because it can have a meaningful effect for clients. But one of the challenges this year as we're going through to try and help our clients is that um, President Trump and congressional Republicans have presented um, you know, proposed changes to our tax code. And if you think about filing your taxes and all the work that our accountants do, and they just seem to be so amazing to me. I know at least my accountant is always always thinking there's always something that he considers that I might not um, but what could change by the end of the year is you know these new proposed changes that they're presenting really don't have an effective date yet so right now they're just 
just a proposal um, that they hope will move into to actual changes, and they could be for 2017. Most likely, they'll probably be for 2018. Um, but in general, when you think about filing your tax returns, you think about a gigantic you know, envelope or stack of papers, um, and really what they want to try and do um, is make the tax code simple enough that you can file your taxes using a postcard, um, which would be interesting. Amazing. And there's a couple what, – what's that? That would be amazing. I mean, I know that's I know, the claim. I, know, I can't believe it. It? <laughs> it would. And so there's a couple of, um, you know, large-scale changes that they're presenting. So right now we are in a seven-bracket system, meaning you, um, your adjusted gross income is going to put you in one of seven different tax brackets. So they want to go from that seven-bracket system to a three-bracket system. And that will possibly be open to um, – maybe a four-bracket system where they would have an additional higher tax rate um, for higher income earners. So their proposed tax rates are a 12% tax rate, a 25% tax rate, and a 35% tax rate, which they assume will lower most people's taxes. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that they're doing, if they lower taxes, they have to pay for those reductions somehow. So what they're doing in that instance, and this is another big change, is they're eliminating all itemized deductions except for mortgage interest um, and charitable donations. And that, that, that's a big change um, because that means medical expenses, state income taxes, property taxes, and those kinds of other expenses will no longer be deductible. Um, so that's a big difference. And then they're also planning on doubling um, the standard deduction. Um, so right now for a married couple, it would go from $12,700 to $24,000. Um, for single taxpayers, it would go from 6350 to $12,000. So there's lots of changes. They're also saying that they're going to um, – um, make other deductions for child tax credit. Um, so hopefully, if, you know, for families that have children, um, it will benefit them, although it's a little bit of a gray area as to what they have exactly proposed there. So there's lots of changes for the individuals, and then there's a lot of changes for businesses as well. So one of the things that they want to do is for family-owned businesses, for small and family-owned businesses, I should say, they want to lower the tax rate for those businesses to 25%. And a big one that we've been talking about lately um, for our clients, especially a lot of our clients are investors, um, and they are planning on changing the corporate tax rate all the way down to 20%. So there's like trillions of dollars that U.S. companies have overseas. And the hope here is, is that if we can reduce that tax rate to something more manageable, um, that money will, be, will come back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And hopefully companies will... Um, you know, expand more here, which will be better for our economy. So there's so much stuff that's in flux that we, um, you know, we just don't know right now. But there are a few principles that you can just kind of take with you. One of the uh, old adages is that you never want to let the tax tail wag the dog. So for investors that are thinking about their investments and saying, you know what, I own this stock or that stock and it's done so well, I don't think it has much more room left to go. In that instance, regard, not regardless of what the tax situation is, but always let your investment case be the lead in your, in your investing decisions. 
And then I, we always work with our clients' accountants because um, if you can defer, um, it sometimes it, ma- it makes more sense to do so. So that's a lot of information. I don't know if that helped clear things up or if you have any questions. But Well, you know, I'm looking across at Colleen here, again, the president of LaSalle University, and I'm wondering if, if anything is going to be changing as far as um, education and taxes for schools. Um, I haven't heard much talk about that, and maybe you can. I haven't. I, in fact, haven't heard much talk at all, but I'm taking lots of notes. So I'm very (laughs) interested to see where this will go and some of the impact that it may have even around um, student debt and how we think about accessibility to higher education down the road. Yeah, you know, because we're going to be talking uh, with Colleen. She's done an amazing job, one small step that she took, or large step, I should say, was in reducing the tuition um, at LaSalle University and doing it successfully. So is there any last um, tidbit you can um, talk about with regard to taxes and schools and education? Well, I know that I can talk about my, I mean, I have two kids, (laughs) and one is six, and one is three, and I counsel a lot of families that have young children. And believe it or not, to send a, a child today a child born today, if you want to send them to school in 18 years, and and that might be an in-state state school, you have to save about $600 a month in a 529 plan wow. every year from now until age 18 in order to plan for that. And there's there's no better thing to do than to start saving right away, at least from my perspective, if, if you can afford to do it. I mean, in, in many cases, we can't always afford to do $600 a month, that's that's, especially right. that's one for one child. Right. Um, but that, that tax-deferred growth, I mean, we like the 529 plan because every dollar that you put in grows tax-deferred, and as long as you use it for higher education expenses, you take it out and it's tax-free. Um, so... It's a huge benefit um, when saving for for child for your child's education. But um, because these changes are so confusing, um, I have a blog post that's going to be going up onto the Money Matters with Kristen on the Women to Watch website, which would have a link to um, a description of the proposed changes, as well as some tax planning tips for the end of the year. Um, Or you can always visit our website, fhbaird.com and see the Wealth for Women tab, um, and we'll be happy to help in any way that we can. Terrific. Thanks, Kristen. Um, I always like the way you simplify things for us, so we appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. And, thank uh, you. Have a, great, have a great talk. We will. We will, and you have a good week. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Uh, Now I'd like to bring on to the show, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Colleen Hanich. And Colleen is the president of LaSalle University. um, And I'd also like to mention the very first layperson and first female president in its 150-year history. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sue. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. Oh. I know I know what your schedule is like. And even as I'm get, you know, giving that title out, it, it feels like a lot of pressure to me. <laughs> Just in the title. <laughs> the first woman in 153 years. My goodness. My, 
It yeah. feels that way some days. It I certainly bet. it's uh, it's been a wonderful transition, and uh, the Christian brothers, who of course have been the permanent presidents of LaSalle since its inception, have been incredibly warm and gracious as they have transitioned to this leadership. So that's great. It's been great, and, and the community as well. Oh, I know. absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. That you know, I always like to start the show off with my guest background and upbringing because I think sure. it really sets the tone for who you are and where you came from. And uh, I understand you grew up in Toronto, Canada. Yes. And Canadians have a wonderful reputation of being really, really, really nice people. That's, that's what we're <laughs> and told. it's true. So what, what's in the water? I don't know. But it's it certainly, I think it's fair to say that you, you can't generalize about every Canadian, but it is a country whose culture values a certain amount of hospitality and, and kindness and generosity mm. um, between people. So yeah. that comes across in, it, a, in a reputation, whether it's deserved or not, it is certainly the reputation. Yeah, I have found that to be true. Um, so talk about, you know, just your younger years, the young Colleen growing sure. up um, in Canada and, and a little bit about your aspirations as a young girl and maybe some of the challenges you face. Sure. So as you say, I grew up in Toronto. I was born there and um, the oldest of three children my mom and dad, my mother was a nurse, and my father became quite a, um, a very well-established retailer, but was not someone that had a lot of education himself. His family immigrated from Denmark, and um, they were not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. So we grew up in a, a wonderful, wonderful family, a younger brother, younger sister, and periodically we got along. We get along much more now than we did back well, in the day. The I was the oldest. So you were in charge. I was, and I certainly had a very clear idea of how it needed to run. And uh, surprisingly, periodically, they had a different idea as to how it <laughs> needed to run. So um, we lived in quite a few different places in Canada. My father moved for his job. And um, so as it turns out, we were born in three different provinces. I was born in Toronto, my brother in Montreal, and my sister in Vancouver. Wow. So we, we certainly got a, a great education education growing up in the family that I did in seeing um, all parts of the country. And then when I went off to school, I ended up studying on the East Coast. So I saw another part of the country that we really hadn't spent a lot of time of. It's, it was just a great, a wonderful upbringing. But certainly I, I figured out, I think from a very young age, that while I wasn't sure what I was going to be when I grew up, I wanted to be something exciting. And mm -hmm. I studied history was my, my first college degree. And in doing that, I think I got very caught up in, in thinking about what would come after that. I didn't think I wanted to be a history teacher, so I settled with law and really decided that that's where I was going to make a difference yeah. as much as I wanted to. You mentioned the Christian Brothers, and you yes. did attend a Christian Brother um, Academy for I did. high school. I did. Yeah, and it was co-ed. It was. And tell me what kinds of activities you were involved in then. Well, it's funny. Because of the activities I was involved in then, I was very open when a friend raised with me the fact that LaSalle was looking for a new president in um, late 2014, which is when I first became aware that they were searching for their next president. And it was because of what I had experienced at Senator O'Connor College School, which was at that time Christian Brother Run. Um, so it's the mid-80s. I graduated from O'Connor in 1985. We had to complete a 40-hour service project. Now... Wow. 
I know you have children and I have children as well that have, have completed high school and the, the service project has now become the bread and butter of high schools, but it was not in the mid eighties and none of us understood. I can tell you, I'd love to say that we were just all so thrilled with the idea of 40 hours of service, but we weren't wait, what do you mean? We have to do what on top of this and this and this and yeah, so on. Right. But it touched hours. me in a way that I never forgot that mm-hmm. notion of, understanding what community is and how we serve a community. So fast forward 30 years, and I'm um, now at that time in 2014 a, um, a president of a women's college in, in um, London, Ontario, near Toronto, and I'm somebody brings to my attention, you know, LaSalle University in Philadelphia is looking for their next president. I'd been a president then for almost seven years, and I, I thought to myself, this is a Christian Brothers school. I bet, or I'm curious, am I going to see the same kind of charism, the same kind of view of the world that I saw when I was a teenager. So it actually impacted me tremendously because I would never be here but for that. Yeah. Is there an experience when you were doing that 40 hours? um, Mm -hmm. I know my son did something similar at LaSalle High School Mm -hmm. and spent a week down in in the city in in an area very, very poor Mm -hmm. and with lots of troubles. And it was an eye-opener for him. Can you remember um, one of the things that you did that stayed with you, perhaps someone you met? It was exactly that. It was the idea of um, my service was spent downtown Toronto in a very poor part of the city, and we were working with a, a soup kitchen, a food bank kind of thing then. And I remember being, until that moment, very unaware of, of that slice of the city, of that entire population that did not know if they were going to eat the next meal. And that sounds so cliche, but I had grown up by then in a very comfortable um, middle-class home, and it had never occurred to me that there were actually... I mean, we always talked about children in Africa or children far away, but no one really talked about children right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And so I remember to this day, uh, my my best friend at the time... Tracy, she, we were in each other's weddings and so on, and the two of us just sort of being stunned by what we saw. Mm. So well, life changing. Yeah, as a child, it's an idea that we have. It's a right. story, right? And then to see it, yeah, in, in, makes to it real. See kids that looked like you, except that they didn't have shoes on their feet or they had a lot of food insecurity. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about your, you know, your Catholic education and how mm-hmm. it influenced your life and still does today. And you said something beautiful about um, Catholic education to you um, is a means to advance the common good and to celebrate the dignity of every person. I love right. that. How? So uh, it's certainly I didn't create that phrase, but for me, what it means is to recognize that we are, in fact, our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. It is our responsibility to go through this life and look around us to those that we can give a helping hand to. And a helping hand can be as little as a kind word or a a simple gesture, or a helping hand can be taking the gifts we've been given, the treasure that we have earned, and putting that to improve the lives of those around us. It is that sense of community that for me, um, animates what it means to be Catholic. And it absolutely is unique 
and alive and well on Catholic campuses. So we see it, whether it is in an elementary school or a, a wonderful Catholic secondary school, and, and certainly in higher ed as well. So there are things that happen on the campus of LaSalle because all of us in that community are focused on serving our students mm-hmm. and recognizing their dignity. There are things that happen that simply wouldn't happen elsewhere. Yeah. So. I want to be part of that. Yeah. That's yeah. how and I And the look diversity. At it. Oh, And the yeah. diversity, too. Absolutely. Um, you, so you graduated with a degree um, in history from St. Michael's. Mm-hmm. I wondered what sparked your decision to go to law school then. So the family story on that, as it goes, is that my Uncle Greg, my mom's brother, um, was a lawyer, is a lawyer still to this day. And um, he started prepping me to be a lawyer when I was still running around in diapers when I was just a little baby and I he would train me that when he was coming into the room I would say here comes the judge so (laughs) that became the family story and I think it just um I was very close to him and he was certainly one of the mentors I had in my life and um I saw what he did and what his days were spent doing and I think some of the the qualities that I had the attributes that I had lined up well with that I love mm-hmm. to argue I love to public speak and so on so it, it became a very natural consideration for me did he do that with all the kids or just oh you? I think he I think he focused on me on for you. whatever reason but born. yes I think so <laughs> he and my mom were extremely close they were number seven and eight of eight children and so wow. they grew up really close to, to one another they're still very very close to this day and I think uh, that was just one of his focus points was on that would you I I always feel that when uh, women have uh, a a man in their life that believes in them Mm. it has a big impact Mm -hmm. more so than a female friend or a Mm -hmm. mother or a sister Mm -hmm. is he would you say he's one of the first men that believed in you there's no question of course my father uh, my father's past but we were extremely close and uh, my uncle Greg was right up there, right next to him as somebody else who believed in me. And I think, you know, we've talked about mentors before, and women talk a lot about mentors. And and while I take mentorship very seriously, and at any given time, I'm always mentoring younger women, it it just has worked out that way. Many of my mentors have been men, and maybe it's just my age and where I'm at in my life. But many of the people that really instructively supported my career and my professional development were men. And so... In the it's family, outside of the family, yeah, yes. It's interesting. It's different. I think it, it is, is different, different I think for we everyone. We expect our female friends and right. moms and sisters to say, "You're, you're fabulous. You're wonderful. You can yes. do anything." <laughs> you say, it's oh, a given. You're just saying that. That's right. It's true. <laughs> you're supposed to say that. Yeah. Um, so in 2003, you were appointed assistant dean mm-hmm. um, for first year students at your uh, alma mater, yes. Osgood Hall Law School. Yes. I want to know what you learned from from those kids. We do not have enough time for me to tell you all that I learned from them, Susan. My goodness. So I was a young professor at the time and had little kids, babies, in fact, at home. Our our youngest was born the fall of 20, 2003. So I was either expecting her or she was newly arrived at that time. But um, to see what some of these kids had had overcome in order to get to law school and what some of their ideas were for what would happen after they left law school. And to, to see some of them that um, were, you know, really you're into millennials at this point, that were so focused on how they were going to change the world was inspiring. Mm. So my biggest job was to get out of their way, to, to move remove myself and any impediments that they would have and to try and make sure that that they had access, uh, A, to a wonderful legal education, but to all the side pieces that would support them in their dreams. And it was 
what I learned from them was was really just tremendous, that it was less about hierarchies and positions and structure and more about valuing ideas and mm. people and relationships, and, and that was really where they were coming from, a very different thought. I wonder if that was the beginning because so that was 2003 Mm -hmm. and I think today we're seeing a lot more of young people wanting not just to go find a job but to be affiliated with a company or corporation that is giving back and doing something right right Right. I don't think that was always the case I don't even myself growing up didn't have that kind of um, you know, as a student thinking, I, I want to go do something that changes the world. We didn't know. My job. I didn't know when I think about my first job, I didn't know a lot about the, the philanthropic culture of, of the law firm that I, I went to or what the partners were like in terms of their commitments to, to making the world better. I think it's absolutely different. Our students now are looking for that Mm -hmm. when they arrive at college and it's well ingrained in their secondary education and what came before and in their families and so on. They absolutely are going to work for corporations that line up with them on a value level. It's not just about um, pay or quality of life. I mean, certainly they want to be valued for their contribution, but they want to feel that they're making a difference, that they are actually doing something that's meaningful. Yeah. I, what a wonderful thing for, <laughs> our, for our children and, and so on. Yeah, and you mentioned quality of life. I mm-hmm. think, again, that's something that's different today in our culture than years ago. Years ago, it was just hard work, get your job, and you know. And right. today, it's how can I be successful and work hard but still have quality of life, mm-hmm. have, you know, and I won't say balance, but right. a good life where right. you're not feeling it's all work or all play. And how do you do that? And it's interesting because um, especially when I was in my time at Brescia University College, my first college presidency, quite often I would have young women who would come and seek me out, students who would say, you know, how do you balance and how do you and, – and, you know, the conversations we had, that was one thing. But what was of interest to me is that they were thinking about that at that time. And I remember, you know, going back in time to when I was in law school and thinking about my first legal job. And what I knew was absolutely true is I would never even admit to having a life outside of work once I got there. Mm -hmm. It was, we are fully available for everything and every hour that you need me and every piece of work that you need me to do. It was never about, well, you know, either I want to have a family or if you know, I, I have these other things in my life that are very important to me. I run marathons or I'm involved in whatever it was that just never came up. Mm. So we see young people now who are looking at those careers and maybe the careers that they saw their parents um, go through and say, mm, not so sure. Mm. I want I want a good life. Yeah. And, you know, and we talked about that a little bit before the show. And, and it leads me to my next question about about overwhelm and um, it might not be that creative of a question, but what I'm always trying to learn from my guests is uh, the women that come on the show are very, very busy and they're involved in a lot of things, as are you. Um, A very important role as LaSalle University and then you're involved in many things outside of school. Um, You chair multiple events and you're a mother of three. So that's a lot of stuff. So what I want to know is when those moments come where you feel you're just, there's so, first of all, do you experience overwhelm? Mm-hmm. And when and if you do, what is your mantra to kind of, you Get know, move it. yourself out of that that feeling? I absolutely do experience moments of overwhelm. And I think, I think that that is 
a given for, for most of us in any sort of a leadership role in particular, there are just days when it all sort of crashes in and there's things going on at work and it might be the same day that you have a child who is sick or a dog that was hit by a car or whatever it is. And it just, so I, the way I work through that when it's work-based overwhelm is I simply say, I'm one person and I'm doing my best. And as long as I'm doing my best, that's going to be good enough. Mm. And I really believe that. Yeah, you have to believe it. I you do. can't just say it, right? No, I yep. absolutely believe that if I'm doing my absolute best, then I'm confident enough in myself to know that that's going to be good enough. And that is a very calming thing for me to be reminded of. Yeah. Um, whatever is going on at work, my family is always a haven of support mm -hmm. and it, it is a refuge for me so I know that at whatever point I get home whether it's six o'clock or eight or ten or whatever I have my best friend waiting there and my husband and whatever was overwhelming in that day is going to be pushed to the side. Mm. I sometimes wonder if we're doing the right thing by living this way mm -hmm. um, you know are we meant to be so so busy all the time mm -hmm. from morning to night and women in particular I just think because we're uh, our, in our DNA we're problem solvers and we're caretakers and we're peacemakers mm -hmm. um, that we that we do try to do too much and do you think about that do you think oh. about you know absolutely I, I mean if you if you really think about it, you know that it's taking days off your life. Just to, mm -hmm. to have any kind of stress over any period of time, you have to say, this is probably shortening my life. However, the flip to that, the balance to that is to say, hopefully I'm making a difference. I, I'm making a, a, a difference in the lives of others. I'm showing um, some good qualities and some good um, example to my children and seeing, showing them what can be. But I think we will see, you know, when, when you think about the feminist movement and, and the different roles that women have played in and outside of the home and how that has shifted over mm -hmm. the decades, you may start to see the pendulum swinging back a little bit. Yeah. And, and we're all, I'm I seeing so. it absolutely in the students that, that I am encountering every day. I'm seeing them saying, yep, it really doesn't matter to me if I have a big fancy job. What matters is I want to have a family that's well and that we have dinner together at night. And and sometimes you get the sense that they are reacting to maybe something that they didn't have in their own families mm. and wanting to, yes. to swing it back a little yes, bit. Yes, definitely. And I, I sometimes say, you know, there's a good busy and a right. not so good busy. So Correct. sometimes, you know, you can be busy, but if you're thriving and loving it, that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, the, it's those moments, as you call them, of overwhelm. If those are coming too often, mm. you really need to think about That's it. Right. Be, That's right. Can't be good for us. Yeah. Um, listen, we're going to take a quick break for sure. our sponsors. And when we come back, I, I want to talk about when you got that call to come to LaSalle and, and why you think now, why, why the first woman president now. We'll be right back. Great. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more. 
all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Colleen Hanich, who is the president of LaSalle University. She has a a big, big job. And we should give a shout out to Karen McNamara. I hope she's listening. Because, hi, Karen. Hi, Karen. She is the one that connected the two of us. Right. And I was thrilled. She is just so incredibly inspired by you. Um, and not just by the work that you're doing, but who you are. Oh, so I want to say thank you very to her. Kind. I hope she's I hope she, well, actually, she should be working, right? So we don't know if I she's suspect, listening. I suspect a, a number of them are listening on campus, are so good? it's good. Good, good, good. So I want to go to, it was July 2015 mm-hmm. that you became the first layperson and first woman president um, of LaSalle in its 150-year history. That's mm-hmm. a long time, and that says a lot, doesn't mm-hmm. it, about our culture? So my first question is, why now? Why at this time in history do you think that they were ready? Well, it's interesting. I think we are seeing in many of our Catholic colleges and universities across the country um, opportunities where the boards of those schools are looking beyond the founding congregation. So whether it was a group of Catholic um, women and sisters or whether it was Catholic men, priests or brothers or otherwise, that they are starting to um, look outwards and say, you know, at least let's open the consideration to consider someone who is not part of that religious community, who brings a different viewpoint and different experiences. I think if, if, um, you know, certainly LaSalle would have considered other Christian brothers to continue the leadership of the school that had been so well led for over 150 years. But um, probably they were open to looking at my dossier at the time because I had some experience as as um, in that in the position of president already. And so I think in these days where higher ed has become such a complicated big business, they're really looking for those who have have had some experience. Do you think in the pool of people that they were looking Mm -hmm. at, they were focused on, if we can find a woman, it'll be a good move? So that's interesting. LaSalle University until 1970 was all men. 
And then in 1970, they admitted their first class of female students. So it isn't very long, really, in the grand mm. scheme of 100 and almost 55 years now that LaSalle has had uh, women students. And yet we are at 60% women now and have been as high as 65% women in recent history. So I think... There was certainly a recognition that having a woman um, to serve a community that was majority women students is really a nice thing to be able to do, but I don't think it was their number one goal necessarily. Okay. I mean, I, I, I've never, I really don't have much insight into what the search committee was thinking and so on, but I think they were looking for skill sets and experience and so on and a fit with the culture of the campus, and those things were important. The fact that I ended up being the first woman woman president at LaSalle was probably an added bonus for them. Yeah. So tell me, is it pressure, that label? Because that label is going to be with you forever. (laughs) I I don't know. I will have to say there are lots of things that are pressure. That is not one of them. I cannot tell you, Sue, since I got here, how many women have approached me. It happens all the time. As recently as a week ago when we had our one big weekend, which was our combination of family weekend and homecoming, and I had alum coming up to me saying, oh, you know, it's so great to meet you, and I was so excited, and yay, girl power, or something like that. (laughs) So there there has just been such a warm welcome from men and women, and our students. I I mean, I really think it's important. I, I speak a lot about leadership and girls and women in leadership in particular. And what we know about young people is if they are inspired to leadership, one of the ways that they are inspired is by seeing people who are like them in leadership roles. So whether it is young um, African-American kids seeing an African-American president of this country and what that eight-year opportunity provided to them, or, or something on a much smaller scale where we have you know, freshmen on on the campus of LaSalle University looking and saying, wow, this school is led by a woman. Those are really important messages that are being sent. That's and I right. think for me, um, it has just been that part of it has just been truly beautiful from start to finish. Yeah. Um, you have done an incredible job in, in your role as president, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, you know, it covers a lot of areas. Um, And these were some of the things that you were focused on and you've been successful. A a brand new refreshed brand for Mm -hmm. the school, a tuition reset, which Mm -hmm. I really want to talk about, a new core curriculum, um, and a five-year strategic plan. So a lot as a mother um, and all of my friends and you know who have had children that have gone through school or are planning for for Mm -hmm. college, it's such a heavy um, I don't want to say burden, but well, it is financial oh. burden, right? It's all, it's out of control, and you have managed to, you know, dial it back. I I want to know what was your focus that allowed this to happen, mm-hmm. or did you kind of separate these all into quadrants and say I'm going to deal with this area first and this area? But specifically, I'm interested in how you managed to to reduce the tuition and still so that one that one was a very um, interesting process we took a long time looking at that but uh, and we worked with an economist and we worked with some other higher education consultants but I think what triggered us even looking at the possibility of tuition reset is that we had a new president and I arrived from Canada which has a very different model um, especially when it comes to higher education and healthcare and how those are funded. And, and as we had at the top of the hour, some talk about taxation and, and how that works. Um, so in Canada, a student would never pay more than six or $7,000 a year in tuition to go to any college in the country. And so when I arrived here, I realized that 
our model of funding college education here is so far broken it's not even funny. And so you have families that are selling property in order to fund college for their students or going down from two cars to one car or reverse mortgages on the houses that they are living in. And we are not treating higher ed in this country as a common good that everyone should have access to. This is, and, and, and there is some disagreement among researchers about this, but many who have, rec- have suggested that this is the first generation of college education educated students who will have less education than their parents' generation. So when you look around at this country and see the need for leadership, and I think that is clear mm. on all, in all levels, the last thing we need to do is have less educated children. And yet, college has become such a barrier. We know that a college degree leads to success, and yet the barriers are, have become insurmountable for families. So I look at a school like... Um, LaSalle, and it is very representative of what was taking place across the country. Between 1982 and 2012, the cost of college increased 12-fold, 1,120%. That's, I, I mean... Ridiculous. It is... Oh, I want, so I always want to know the why. So why right. would the powers that be not model a system Correct. that works? Correct. And we're not seeing that, are we? So you have a school like LaSalle that has some some really strong history in this region in particular. And I looked at that and said, there is an opportunity for leadership here. There is an opportunity for us to partner with students, with families to say, we're going to be part of this solution and, and not part of the problem anymore and see how we can do that. And LaSalle is not supported by It's not a state-funded school. This is a private institution. So obviously- More freedom. Right. right there's yes. a lot of freedom. But mm-hmm. at the same point, we rely very- very heavily on tuition revenues because we aren't receiving a plug from the Commonwealth. So it isn't, it's, it's a little tougher to do when you're a, a private college, but you do, you have some agility, you have some flexibility that I think really we took great advantage of. So if you could have been there at the end of September last year when we, we got all of our students together and into our basketball arena, we said, we have some big news to tell you, but we're not going to tell you what it is. So just come on this particular date at the end of September this 27th, actually, they came and they're all sitting in the stands and they're all excited. And we played a film, a little video for them that we had done that demonstrated we were resetting our tuition. Well, by the end of the video, I could barely speak because so many of them were in tears. Oh my like the burden that wow. they are carrying, these oh. young people, when really they just need to study and do and, and learn their material and get through college and be successful. But instead, they are so worried. Yeah. It, it's either their own part of what they have to pay or they're worried what mom and dad are going through right. to try and make this possible. It yeah. is it is just it's extraordinary to me that this country has not seen more of these kinds of initiatives. What what is I mean we could probably do a whole show on right. on ha- what you've done and I'd love to know um, what's the pushback so from other universities that are continually increasing their tuition so really the way the way it works is you have a sticker price and our sticker price was forty one thousand four hundred last year so my first year as a president I said okay we're going to take a closer look at this we're going to freeze it for now so we didn't have any increases that year and then we re-rolled it back this particular this fall um, the students who arrived it was 30% lower tuition tag than it had been and 
the thinking about that is, and the reason that all schools don't do it, is there are some students who are paying that $41,000 sticker price, sticker price. Some students who are just not qualifying for financial aid or for merit-based aid, scholarships, athletic scholarships, and, and who don't have financial need, so they are actually paying the 41.4. So schools say, well, if I roll that back to 35 or 30 or whatever, then we aren't going to have anyone paying us that extra piece. So you lose something. You lose a little bit. But, but you, you just look to where can we cut then? That's right. Like or, so where can we be more students. efficient that isn't hurting students? Or maybe we can grow a little bit if we have some capacity for growth. So you, you, you balance it in a different way. But it's just far more honest so instead of saying to students, well, you know, it's sticker price of 41000 but here's $20,000 in aid, which is really like a coupon system. It's like a retail model. Instead of that, we say, okay, $28,000 is our tuition. Is there some financial aid? Yes, there's still some aid. There's always going to be some aid, either merit-based or need-based, but we're really trying to keep the price low for families so that we can educate these kids and let them be more educated than their parents were and solve a lot of the problems in the world. Yeah. Well... I have to ask you, do you have you ever thought about political aspirations? Oh, oh. <laughs> I've been asked that before, but right now I am loving what I'm doing. I love higher ed. I love Catholic higher ed in particular and having the opportunity to be part of this campus life that, that I've been invited into. So I think um, you want to talk overwhelming. I think for now <laughs> I will just try I won't add that pressure to where your I life. am. Yes. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, I I I admire your uh, very thoughtful um, way of thinking and your straight talk and what I um, would define as very common sense solutions. Uh, thank so you. we need more of that in, in Washington. We do, we do. For sure. Um, I'm going to read a quote that I, I found that you said, uh, we live in a world that is becoming increasingly complex with shifts in communication, technology, culture, religion, um, and a growing increase in global conflict. The tough part is that we see it and hear it all day long, every day. Um, is your outlook positive or fearful? Well, and it sort of brings us full circle in the notion of, of mentoring girls and young women for leadership and for taking on leadership roles. I think um, those voices at the table are going to make a difference, a very positive difference in resetting some of the balance in the world right now. And I think the extent to which all of us can be committed not only to our individual selves, or our own private families, but to being part of a broader solution, that is the only way we're going to have that solution. Otherwise, um, you end up with a very pessimistic, pessimistic view if you look five years, ten days. I mean, look at some of the tragedies that are going on that we're becoming very used to on a global right. scale, whether these are... Um, tragedies that are driven by individuals or by natural disasters. It, it has, you know, a, a day in the media and then it moves on and we're on to the next tragedy. That's not normal. And we need to absolutely spend more time thinking about what the solution is going to be because I think right now we're not getting closer. We're stepping further away. So if someone said to you, why women, how, right. would, how would you answer that? In my view and in my 51 years of life, women lead differently, and that isn't to say they lead better, but they have um, some natural inclinations. Not all women, but many women have some natural inclinations towards leadership that are driven by biology and that are driven by the way we are raised and sociology that 
that incline us to be more relational, more focused on problem solving and conflict resolution. Um, when I did my PhD, it was in the area of conflict resolution, and there was a significant difference in the ways that women mediators, which is what I was looking at, mediators, approach resolving conflict than men. Again, not saying one way is better than the other, but we need both. And right. so to, so I spent a lot of my time this weekend. I was working with a, a group on campus that, that was visiting um, Girls Today, Leaders Tomorrow with young women, trying to encourage them to think about leadership. We have to be, be very serious about that, though, Sue. When we look at politics and how women are treated when they run for elected position, and, and there's no f- much less focus on ideas, much more focus on things that nobody should be focused on in, in who we elect. And you can see why women are reluctant often to take on some of those roles. And the same can be said in corporations. The same can be said in universities where women are and women presidents are, are very underrepresented and end up losing their jobs more often than their male counterparts. So it's um, sometimes the, the impediments that women face in leadership are different than the impediments that men face and are sufficient enough or significant enough that women will say, ah, no, I'm mm. not that interested in that. I don't want that kind of focus on myself. I do not. Right? And by the way, I'm also being squeezed because I continue to be the primary caregiver of small children and of elder care with aging parents. And so there are all these great reasons to not choose leadership for women. Um, I spend a lot of my day trying to convince them otherwise, whether it's um, young faculty members at LaSalle or, or girls who are coming from marginalized populations here in the city of Philadelphia and trying to keep that, that conversation going. So t- you have two daughters, and I'd love to I know you, you, what, you know, the, culturally there's a focus on the physicality, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. that's been for a long, 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 long time. So what kind of conversations do you have with your daughters? What do you say to them to help them not succumb to those it's stereotypes. tough. It's very tough. And so um, I have one daughter who is a college freshman, and I have one daughter who is a high school freshman. And they have both been very blessed in the time that we have been in the United States, which which is now only two and a bit years. Our, um, our, our college freshman graduated from Mount St. Joseph Academy, and our high school freshman is at Mount St. Joseph Academy. And I look at that as an example the environment there of some incredibly powerful messages to these girls and young women about what is important about them, what it is that they bring to the world, and what they must demand in return. So even those conversations that they are hearing in the classroom and that they are hearing from the administration of their school, um, I I take the opportunity really to expand upon those in in the the discussions we have at, at home. And I say, look, you know, you are going to be valued for your ideas and for your your characteristics, your virtues. That's what's important. And and as much as you want the attention of some who might value for other things, value for other things that are not important, you really have to resist that. So um, those have been great conversations with my girls. And I'm very lucky because, again, my husband and I are of one mind on this. So it's, it's equally helps. important for them to hear that from their dad. That's right. And from their older brother, That's who right. is a college junior, mm-hmm. and 
they're pretty, most of the days they're good conversations. Yeah, good. Yeah. I think what happens often, you know, we can say something to them as a parent and then they go right. out with their friends who have different messages. Right. So right. just being consistent. It right? is, exactly. And, and showing them by example, right? right? The, the best way to, to live. This is not a creative question, but I would love to know a typical day when you're not going on a radio show. What, what in the world like? is a typical day for the president of a university? <laughs> well, what's typical is that there is no typical day, okay. but I will give you a sample. So <laughs> quite often, um, I I do a lot of speaking. So maybe I'm speaking at an event on campus or off campus. Uh, it, it might be speaking about LaSalle or it might be speaking about leadership. One of the things that I've done since I arrived here has gotten very involved with a number of the academic high schools and, and um, secondary colleges in the region, and I go and speak. So I, I visit these schools. I'm there not speaking about LaSalle, but I'm speaking about um, leadership or I'm speaking about resilience. So I've spoken at a, a number of the, the schools in the area, and, and I'm busy doing that. I love young people. I love the conversations that I have with them. I love the ability to to really um, push them to make the choices that they need to make. And um, I do a lot of that. I, of course, uh, um, it's death by a thousand meetings most days, most days for me, as is any administrator will tell you. Um, I spend a lot of time working with my board of trustees. I have the most amazing board at LaSalle, and so there's a lot of work to be done in that area. I'm often working with alumni and talking, advancing the university, so whether it's you know, conversations about supporting philanthropically the university or coming and being a volunteer on one of our boards or coming and speaking to our students in the classroom and helping to bring that magic onto campus. So it's just a whole lot of great things. But this is one of the really <laughs> fun ones. Emails? I mean, oh, how about emails? Oh, yes. Yeah. Hundreds you, and hundreds of emails yeah. every day. Yeah. Here's what I would love to know. How do you keep things flowing and moving? Because I, I've had some experiences working with universities where things can take a long time mm-hmm. because they have to go through so many mm-hmm. different departments, right? So, and then things don't get done. So what's your philosophy for... So one of the things that when I talk about moving, getting work done and workflow and moving it forward... I spent some time in a law firm before I ever went back and did my graduate work, my LLM and my PhD in law. I was actually a practicing securities litigator for a number of years where things moved really fast. Mm -hmm. So I like to think that as much as I then, my career took a different, I spent some time home with my kids. Um, When I left the practice of law, it was important to me at that time in their lives for me to be home with them. So I was, and I was doing my graduate work, and then I went and began an academic career. And you're right. I remember being very frustrated by how slow things moved, at least from my perception. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not a slow mover when it comes to these kinds of things. And both of the schools that I've been involved in now in leadership roles, uh, people would say, yep, there's definitely nothing slow. So if you look at the list that you went through for a school to have accomplished those That's things right. in just over two years is really well, that's pretty that's extraordinary. Why I'm thinking you, you so, must have a way, some a way to motivate your team, and get them to. I have a great team. Yeah. I have the most remarkable team, both in my office staff and also on the cabinet of the university, which is all of the VPs and and so on. And they understand that we're moving quickly right now. Mm -hmm. And so that team, it ripples out from there. So then you have a faculty body and a staff body who are really keen to see some great positive changes for the university. So um, it has been 
a whirlwind. There's no two words about it. And I think um, there are many people at LaSalle right now who are probably begging for just a little bit of a little pace <laughs> yeah, change. A little break. A little break. <laughs> yes. We're all in that boat where yeah. a little break would be good. But right now we are pushing very hard and, and starting to see great Great I think that's a great thing. Fruits, I, yeah. I really do. I mean, I, as someone, I am very impatient by nature. That's and it. I, I want to just get things done. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I would never have survived in academia, I don't oh, think, no, if I we couldn't. couldn't move it quickly. Yeah. And and sometimes, I mean, some things need to take time. Well, that's right. Not to the, You don't want to do it to the thoughtful. point of making mistakes. No, no they need to no. be very thoughtful, and you need to come at problems and pause and come back at it and pause and come back. And some of that is absolutely true, but... You know, we completed our, our um, five-year strategic plan in six months last year. It can be done in six months. It can be. And compromise, right? Absolutely. To, you can't get stuck in the, you know, the defense of my no, way is no, the only no, no, way. No, 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 If yeah. everyone is, has got their eye, and that's what I tend to do a lot of, is reminding the entire community that we're here to serve our students. And mm. so every single decision we make every day mm. should be what's best for the students. There you go. And yeah. so that tends to motivate people. And That's right. I just, I'm very blessed in the community at LaSalle. They're a, a wonderful group of colleagues and everybody is rowing in the same direction right now, Good. knock wood. So yeah. it's great. Tell me what is behind your drive. So mm. um, sometimes I think that um, people are are driven by trying to prove something to themselves or perhaps to someone else. Sometimes it's just for the love and the excitement of the challenge. So it's funny. I think it changes as you age. And I think of myself as a young professional, a young woman just starting out. It was probably the the latter of what you've described. Like I wanted to prove something to people that I could do this and 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 prove it to myself. And I'm not at that stage anymore. I think mm. the proving is over. Good. And yeah. instead, I I quite love the chase, and I quite love um, the 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 difficult problem, the difficult sort of issue and trying to find the way around it. A Rubik's Cube is what I always refer to it. I find that really challenging, mm -hmm. sometimes too challenging. Sometimes it's just, wait a minute, there's too many of these sort of interesting problems on my desk right now, and I, I need less of them. But it is, the drive absolutely comes from trying to leave any place that I've been better than I found it. Mm. And, and there is a tremendous satisfaction in that. Well, and seeing these wonderful results, right, 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 and it's, and it's the results that that we're having at LaSalle now are are um, not that different than the results I had at the institution that I led prior to that in Canada, um, a smaller school, but the same kinds of turnaround results, and that's what we're seeing now. So. Yeah. Um, that is exciting because people see a little bit of improvement and then they get more motivated for change and get caught up in it. And we're seeing a real shift in a positive shift in some of the way that in families that are thinking about higher education and college and where they're going to go and considering LaSalle very seriously right now. So we have about 10 seconds left. Absolutely. Any last, last comment, last bit of advice, announcement about the school, anything there look on all of our social media, whether it's my Twitter, which is president, um, at uh, president. Hanich, check it all out. It's great news. Yeah. Social media. I'm not going to give out your contact information. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> because you have enough of that. Um, Colleen, thank you so thank much. You, Sue. I really this was enjoyed it. Tremendous. Thank, thank you. you. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Uh, be sure to check out our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. And have a great week. You're